We're kind of on week three, not kind of on week three, actually on week three of a study in Colossians. We're going through a book called Colossians in the scripture for those of you guys who don't know this and it's okay if you don't, but uh, the, the word of God, the Bible is 66 books and, and they all kind of do different things. There's history and there's books of songs in there and all kinds of different things. And this particular book that we're studying right now called Colossians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And the short form, form that we call it is Colossians. And so last week, I talked a little bit about Paul's introduction. He introduces himself, he prays for the church, and then he gets into his purpose, which is this. He, he wants to firmly locate Jesus as the burning sun at the center of the universe for each individual at the church in Colossae and for the church itself. And, and here's what he does. Uh, we talked about this last week, but here's what he does at the beginning of the letter. He, he establishes two things. He establishes the person of Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus, is, is not um, kind of a, a good prophet or a good teacher or, 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 or somebody who kind of became divine as he went along. Jesus was, the, was with God and was God in the beginning. He was God from eternity past and he is the image of the invisible God. He became God in the flesh. And I was gonna use an illustration last week uh, and, and I didn't mention it in the second service, but I did in the first service, but I, but I feel like I should now just so you guys don't get, don't get um, you know, don't get slighted. So the first service, I mentioned this last week. Do you remember these things? You remember what I'm talking about from the mall growing up? Okay. So for those of you who don't know, there's like all kinds of pins on this thing. It's a, probably a ways away to see it. So here's what we talked about last week, that God lives in unapproachable light. And no one can see his face and live, just as he says to Moses. So in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is coming apart at the seams, we talk about like a baseball coming apart at the seams because he's come, he's got just a glimpse, just a glimpse of the glory of God. So God cannot be seen. He lives behind a veil, but his son Jesus is the image. Yeah. If I push my hand into that thing. Can you see my hand now? Good. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact imprint. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And that illustration went just about as well in this service as it did in the first service, which is not well at all. But that's beside the point because you will remember that next time you read Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Nobody take my toy. That's the first thing that, that Paul wants to establish about Jesus at the beginning of Colossians. The second thing that he wants to establish about Jesus is his work in creation, that all things were created in him and by him and for him and through him. He holds all things together, all things point to him, and like an artist who imagined the, uh, imagines a painting or imagines a sculpture, like a writer who imagines a novel, Jesus imagined that and constructed it, and now all things point back to him. And then Paul does something really interesting in these three verses that we're going to cover today. He begins to talk about Christ's role or Jesus's role in the church, 
in the church. It's interesting to me because what he talked about last week, remember that Jesus holds all things, all the stars and the universe and the planets and the 800,000 different species of insects. He holds all that together. He created all that. And then immediately, Paul begins to talk about to this church in Colossae, Jesus' role in the church. That's interesting to me because I felt like that's kind of down the list of priorities. If Jesus holds all things, why are we now talking about his role in the church? Here's why. Matthew 16, verse 15 through 18. Jesus has a conversation with his disciples and he said this to them. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, here's the critical piece. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? Church. And the gates of hell, that's death or Hades, will not prevail against it. Here's why Paul is so concerned and God, through Paul, is so concerned at firmly locating Jesus as the burning sun at the center of the universe that is the church because the church is God's representative in the world. The local church, the gathering of believers, not the church building, not the church institution, not the organization, not all that stuff, but you and me, the people that you can shake hands with and look at and the faces around you, we are, as an ecclesia is what the New Testament says, the gathering of believers, we are God's representative in the world. We are meant to be the hands and feet of God. We are meant to be his mouthpiece. We are meant to be his ears even in the world. We are meant to be his representative in the world, the church. And so God, listen close now, he is zealous for, I looked for a bunch of different words to use there, but passionate about, committed to, I love that word zealous. He's zealous for the health of the church. He is zealous for the efficacy of the church. He is zealous for the focus of the church because the church is his representative in the world. For that reason, the majority of the New Testament, like 70, 80% of the New Testament, is instructions to the church on how to live, on how to behave, even church governance and organization. God is zealous for the health, efficacy, and focus of the church because we are to be his representative in the world. And so when Paul begins to write this letter to the church at Colossae, he says, Jesus is God. He's the image of God. He's the radiance of God. He's the word of God. He is not an emanation of God. He is not a lesser God. He is God. And he holds the whole universe. And Colossians 1, verse 18. Pick up your Bibles if you've got them with you. If not, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Some of you already have it out which I had not told you to do yet, Al Lindstrom, but whatever. Whatever you want to do, you can just get that out now, buddy, if you want to. Um, and the scripture's always up here on the screen, so you can follow along, just so all of us have the text in front of us. This is what Paul says about Jesus and his role in the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... He might be preeminent. Verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's all we're going to cover today. Just those three verses. That's it. 
Here's the main idea in those three verses, Colossians 1, verse 18 through 20, and if you're writing down notes, jot this down. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, some of you might be thinking, this is what I came to church for this morning? I could have like read that at home. Luke, you wasted a lot of time, effort, energy, and money on seminary if that's all you got this morning. But that's it. That's, that's the main point. That's what Paul is saying to us, that just as my head controls my body, just as my mind tells my body what to do, that's how Jesus and the body, soma in the original language, are supposed to relate to one another. Jesus is to be the thinker for the church, the director for the church, the designer for the church, He's supposed to move and motivate the church. The body doesn't move unless the mind says so, just as the church doesn't move unless Jesus says so. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And in the following verses, Paul begins to unpack all of the reasons why Jesus is the head of the church, God's representative in the world. He says Jesus is the head of the church for this reason and that reason and this reason and that reason. And it's interesting to me because I, I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago and we were talking about um, scripture and she'd been memorizing scripture and, and she's been a believer a long time, mature believer a long time. And she said, I've been memorizing all this Bible. And I said, that's great for you. And she said, yeah, you know what? Now if I can just do it. Because <laughs> it's easier said than done, right? The memorizing part is easy to, 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 to read that and say, Jesus is the head of the church. That's what Paul's saying. And to, and to put that in our minds and get that picture, that's not terribly difficult. As some have said, it's simple, but not easy. To, to employ that and to keep Jesus as the head, even here at Bayview Glen Church, not just Bayview Glen, but the universal church, the corporate church, the worldwide church, the big C church, as you would say, it's difficult to keep Jesus as the focus, the head, the leader. You know how I know that? Because throughout history, we've been letting other things be the head of the church, haven't we? We've been letting other things take the lead. We've been letting other things usurp Jesus' authority and control and bump him off as the leader and bump him off as the head. And we kind of let other things do our thinking sometimes for us. We let other things captivate our focus. We let other things tear us away. And Jesus is not the head of the church anymore, but some other thing is. And it's it's. It's great because in those couple of verses, Paul says, you know what? All of these things that you might allow to be the head of the church, they don't matter for squat because Jesus trumps all of those things. Paul doesn't say squat, but I say squat, okay? That's not him. He says, it doesn't, those things don't matter. Jesus is the trump card in all the situations. So continue to force him, fight for him, struggle so that Jesus is always the head, the leader, the authority in the church. And I'm not an alliterative type of guy. I don't do like the four C's of stewardship and the seven D's of, you know, discipleship or whatever. But in this particular case... We're doing the five Ps, all right, this morning, the five Ps, and I promise I won't always alliterate or I won't, uh, I won't if, it, if it goes poorly, I won't alliterate at all anymore. But we're doing the five Ps of things that we allow to be the head of the church and should not. 
things that we allow to be the head of the church and should not, and then we're going to let Paul in Colossians 1, 18 through 20, just those three verses, speak to our hearts about these particular things that kind of, that kind of creep their way in and become the head and rule and authority in the church. And it's, this is timely for us today. This is timely. So here, just by way of example, here's the first thing that we tend to allow to creep in and be the head of the church and should not. And it's power. Power. Drop that word down, power. And by power, I mean influence. By power, I mean authority. By power, I mean influence in the world around us and influence in this world, our church world. Let's track back to 2,000 years ago because even as I read this passage this week, I was thinking, what to the original audience, what did this mean? To the church in Colossae, as they read this exhortation, as they read this encouragement, as they read this truth, what might have resonated with them in their hearts? Colossae was, a, was, a, was part of the Roman Empire. And so just after Jesus was killed, a guy named Caligula took power. If you know anything about Caligula, he ruled from March 18, 37 AD till January 24th, 41 AD, and he was assassinated by conspiracy, essentially. I'll tell you a little bit about Caligula. Caligula organized the first systematic persecution and killing of Christians. And he was the Roman emperor. He was absolutely bat crazy. I mean, he was, he was nutso. Like, so nutso that he had to be physically removed from the Colosseum because he would go crazy. He would just totally lose it when Christians were killed in the Colosseum by other gladiators and by animals. He, he, they said he would drool everywhere. They said he was just a violent... History records this. He was a violent and cruel man. This is the man who led the Roman Empire in the several years after Jesus was killed. And then a guy named Claudius led for a while, and then Claudius was assassinated by a gal who would like for her son to be the emperor, and she succeeded, and his name was Nero. And then Nero rose to power in Rome. And if you know anything about Nero, he used to take Christians and tie them to poles and cover them in tar and light them on fire so he could light up his garden parties. Nero set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians. The only, here's, what I, here's why I tell you that. Here's why I tell you that. This is the world that Colossae was living in. This is the world that this church was living in. They had been rendered powerless. Most of them poor. Very little of them had any kind of authority or influence in the world. They were being kicked out of their home cities. They were being kicked out of Jerusalem and kicked out of Rome. And when they went to those places, they were killed a lot of times or imprisoned or beaten or whatever. They were rendered totally powerless. And you know what started to happen? Two things. One is they huddled together and loved on one another and cared for one another but one other thing happened that wasn't great. And people began to assert authority and power in the church because they didn't have much authority or power outside of the church. Didn't have much influence, didn't have much say. 
So if you read in Acts chapter 5, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Have you heard of Ananias and Sapphira before? Ananias and Sapphira had a plot of land and they sold it and they brought it to the apostles and they said, hey, we want to donate this money. We want to give to the poor in our community. And we sold this plot of land and we're giving it all to you so you can distribute to the poor as they have need. And Peter said, all? And they said, yes, all. And they were lying. So God struck them dead right there, took their lives. Because they were trying to assert power, control, and authority and influence in the church. They were trying to be the head of the church rather than Jesus. Side note for those of you who say, you know what, we should really go back to what the early church was, was looked look like. You got to take Ananias and Sapphira with it, all right? So maybe, maybe we don't want to totally go back, but this is the type of folks sometimes that were in the early church. And the same thing happens even now as people try to assert power and authority and influence within the church by kind of nudging and, and jockeying for position, try to be a big fish in a small pond, all that stuff. And I don't think it, should, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that there are, there are politics, jockeying, people who try to assert power, as we're talking about, control, authority, and influence in the church. I've heard it said before, there are more politics in church than there are in politics. Did you ever play King of the Mountain when you were a kid? Remember that game, King of the Mountain? It was like a big mound. If there was a big, was a big pile, a big mound, and all the kids would get on this mound, and, and one kid would get on the top and say, I'm the king of the mountain, and basically it's 10 other kids' jobs to kind of force that kid off right, and, and bump him off, and then another kid would get up and declare, I'm king of the mountain, and then they would, you know, other, other, all the other children would pull the king of the mountain off and then get up to the top, and all the time as they're jockeying for position and control and authority and power, they're destroying this mountain bit by bit in this mound, and, 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 it would, and it would just get leveled over time as I played this when I was a kid. This is kind of what happens in the church when people jockey for power, for influence, for position, and for authority, we start to destroy the church. We start to level the church. We start to render the church unable to do what we're supposed to do, which is be God's representative in the world. And Paul, in Colossians 1, offers a solution. Here's what Paul writes. He says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. That word preeminent means first, in control. The, the $2 theological word was, is omnipotent. In other words, here's what Paul says. Jesus is the head of the church because he's all-powerful. Jesus is the head of the church because he's all-powerful. I think it's curious, I think it's interesting that we would ever jockey for position, control, authority, and power in the church because Jesus already has it all. There's none left to get. We jockey for position and announce that we're king of the mountain while Jesus is standing over on the side going, I created that mountain, so it's kind of mine. Remember? In him, by him, through him, and for him, all things were created. And he is the head of the body. He's in control. He has the power. He is preeminent. No reason to jockey for position. No reason to jockey for authority. No reason to let power 
be the driver, be the head, be the leader in our church now. Not just outside there, here. Why? Because Jesus already has it all. (laughs) There's none left to get. Number two, we allow people to be the head of the church sometimes, don't we? We allow people to be the head of the church, to be the, to be the leaders, to be the thinkers. And we're going to talk about what pastors do and elders do. We're going to talk about that briefly this morning. We'll unpack that over time. But get this, people are not the head of the church. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. I'm going to tell you why Paul argues that Jesus is the head of the church. But before we do that, I want you to know that when we allow people or request that people or live our lives in such a way that God is not the head, that Jesus is not the head of the church, we're not really being all that creative. Like, like humans have kind of been sinning the same way for a really long time. Remember, we studied 1 Samuel last year. We studied lessons from the life of David. Remember what the nation of Israel said? We don't want God as our king anymore. What do we want? We want Saul. We want a person to have authority. And Samuel says, look, you're rejecting God as your king. Then we want Saul. He's taller than God. All right, we'll give him to you. And the thing kind of collapsed. This happened at the church in Corinth when the early church was growing and, and, and vibrant and, 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 and things were going really well. There was a couple of individuals in the church that were really serving the church well and sharing the gospel and shepherding and leading and just doing their best. And rather than letting Jesus be the head of the church, which is what these individuals were trying to do, the church in Corinth started to kind of fracture and have factions and divisions because you had A group of people wanting to follow this person and a group of people wanting to follow this person. And Paul addresses it, same guy that wrote Colossians, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. It's up here on the screen, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What's happening at the church in Corinth? They're letting people be the head of the church. Or they're living as if an individual, in this case, Paul or Apollos, is the head of the church. Keep reading. Paul says this, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Who are we? Servants. Through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor plants, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And this has happened since the early church in Corinth, even over the course of church history. The church, at times, has elevated a man, an individual, a preacher, a pastor, a leader, a spiritual leader, or whatever. That's the head. That's the head of the church. That's the leader of the church. But look back at what Paul says in verse 19. This is why Jesus is the head and not a person. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
That word fullness in Greek is pleroma, and literally the word is translated full fullness. Just in case you're wondering how much God is in Jesus. The full fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And so while we might exalt a man or lift up a man or a woman or an individual or a person as head of the church, Paul comes along and he says Jesus is head. Why? Because he's no mere man. He is the God-man. All the full fullness of God dwells in him. Jesus is the head of the church because he's the God-man. No person can replace him. No individual can replace him. And if you let an individual or a person replace the God-man, a, a, a mere man, a simple man to replace the God-man, things tend to fall apart. I was having lunch with a guy a couple weeks ago. I was asking him, hey man, what, what do you see at, at Bayview Glen? What, what, do you, what, what do you see? What, 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 am I, what am I not seeing? What, what things do we need to shore up? What, what, what do we need to do? Yikes, I'm about to lose my water here. Um, there, I know I've got blind spots, at, you know, when it comes to our church. And I was looking for things like, you know, program and, you know, and, and just kind of what's going on in the future and down the road. You know what he said to me? He said, Luke, here's, here's what I see. You need to not be the head of the church. You need, you need for Jesus to be the head of the church. I said, we don't have a lunch on the table yet. Come on, man. Like, you know what? He's right. He's right. No pastor can be the head of the church. And if you make a pastor the head of the church, A, that's not what the Bible says. B, it's destructive. Like, I don't have any qualms about that. Even Kevin, remember Kevin talking about it a little bit last week, and he's just like, look, we're just, we're just people. We're just, we're just people. Please, I beg of you, do me a favor. Don't make me or any other pastor the head of the church. We are exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 of himself and Apollos. We're what? Servants of the king, just like you. Jesus is the God-man. He's not a mere man. He's the God man. He is the head of the church. You know, eh, just a side note, just, just, just a side note. You know what other people that we kind of elevate as, as heads of the church, allow them to do the thinking, do the visioning for our church? People who have been here a long time. You know, that person's really been here a long time. For those of you who have been here a long time, I love you. You're awesome. And so many of you, so many of you demonstrate a level of spiritual maturity that I am, and I know this is sinful, envious of, okay? And you know how you demonstrate that spiritual maturity? You say things like, I don't care how long I've been here, I'm not the head of the church. <laughs> Jesus is the head of the church. All I am is a servant to him. All I am is a servant. The guy I had lunch with this week, or a couple weeks ago that told me that, that that, that got on my case about the, my character before, the table, before food hit the table. Thank you very much. He's been here a long time. That's great if you've been here a long time. But consistent church attendance over a long period of time does not equal spiritual maturity. We're glad that you come. I'm glad that you come. I know you're glad that you come. But you know what spiritual maturity looks like? Oh, man, I'm not the head. <laughs> I'm just a servant. I'm just a body part. I just do what the head tells me to do. I do what the leader tells me to do. I do what Jesus tells me to do. I'm just a mere man. He's the God-man. He's the head of the church. Number three, things we allow to kind of take 
a position in the church, allowed to be the head of the church, and we should not, our positions, positions. By that I mean doctrinal positions. By that I mean theological positions. For those of you who, who may be new to this thing, I want you to know that, that Christians, we're really good at arguing about little stuff that doesn't make any difference. We really are. Some of us like to talk about that kind of stuff. I've got a couple of things, a couple of positions and a couple of kind of theological convictions and a couple of just kind of aspects of who God is and who the church is that I really love to talk about. Some things I don't, you know, but, you know other people can talk about them and I, I can engage and have a conversation with them. I've got a couple of things I really love to talk about. But when I elevate those positions to be the head of the church, and they should not be, that can get really destructive for myself and for the church that I serve and for the church that I call myself a part of. And again, same thing's been happening for 2,000 years. Listen to how Paul addresses this issue in his letter to Titus. Titus 3, verse 4, he says, But when the goodness of and loving kindness of our God, or of our God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Essentially, he just lays out the gospel. God sent his son to redeem us, purchase us. He's washed us. He's renewed us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Keep reading. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to what? Insist on these things so that those who have believed God may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people listen to what Paul says but avoid foolish controversies genealogies dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless could you be a little more clear Paul mm unprofitable and worthless, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a, such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. I didn't say it, Paul said it. Take it up with him. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul talks about folks that get off track and they make second things first things. They make doctrinal positions the issue rather than Jesus. They make their particular theological conviction the head of the church rather than Jesus. In 1 Timothy 1, he says that they have shipwrecked their faith, is the language he uses. I was talking to a friend this week about, forgive the Greek mythology reference here, by the way, talking to a friend this week about an illustration from Greek mythology. Do you remember the sirens on the island in Greek mythology? The, the women on the island that would sing and, 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 and sailors would get in a ship and they would sail towards the horizon and they would sail towards their destination and they would hear these women who were inviting them, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean, with their siren song. They were sunbathing, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean, on this island and calling these sailors to change course and, and to focus there and to try to go to this island to interact with these sirens, these females who were calling sailors over with their song. The unfortunate part about this whole thing was that sirens, these women, lived on an island that was surrounded by rocks. 
And so no boat could ever get in. It was too treacherous to navigate and no boat could ever get out. So when sailors finally gave in and they made the sirens their destination rather than the sun on the horizon their destination, they never got out. They never got to the island, in fact. So they never got to kind of get to a conclusion of what they, what they wanted. They never got what they wanted. Their, 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 their ship was shipwrecked. Paul says it's the same way when we get sidelined by these doctrinal positions that are secondary. They're not primary. They're not the gospel. They're not Jesus. We can shipwreck our faith. You're never going to get in and you're never going to get out. You're never going to make it out okay. It's okay to talk about that stuff. It's okay to have conversations about that stuff. But it's not primary. You want to you you just list a couple of them? That'll be fun, won't it? Let's list a couple of the most contentious issues in church that we, that we allow to make head of the body rather than Jesus. You ready? Buckle your seatbelts. How about creation? Six days, six 24-hour periods, young earth, old earth, theistic evolution, gap theory, all that stuff. People get sidelined by that and their faith gets shipwrecked and we become unable to be God's representative in the world because we're not focusing on the gospel that Paul outlined right there very clearly in Titus 3. What about the predestination versus free will argument? Everybody love that argument? That's a fun one, isn't it? Talk about a shipwreck. How about the role of women in ministry? That's a fun one. It's like a siren song on the island. Let's talk about women in ministry. That seems like a good idea. Right? And our faith gets shipwrecked. What about sign gifts? Tongues, prophecy, are they for today? Church form, like should we be a house church? Should we be exegetical preaching, topical preaching, missional church, attractional church, emergent church was a big deal. For those of you who follow church culture stuff, emergent church was a big deal years ago. And it would just shipwreck people all the time. People talk about church discipline and eschatology. Those are secondary issues. Here's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is very interesting to me about Colossians 1 and these couple of verses that we're talking about here. When Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and he is the head of the church, here's what he's saying. He is the word of God. Jesus is the logos of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the promises of God embodied. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Jesus is the head of the church because he is the wisdom of God. We don't need to get sidetracked by trying to figure out some of the... It's fun to talk about them. I get it. It's fun to look into the scripture and it can be helpful. We can sharpen one another. But when we allow our own wisdom or our own positions to be the head in the church, we get shipwrecked. Paul says, remember, Jesus is the wisdom of God, so he is the head of the church. All our doctrinal questions, check it out, are going to get answered someday. Maybe that's this afternoon, okay? Maybe not. But what we have is a head, a leader, a guide a focus, a sun on the horizon. Let's not get caught up by these sideline secondary issues. Again, fun to talk about, but they are not the head in the church. Jesus is the embodied wisdom of God, so he is the head in the church. Number four, 
Number four, you know what we can allow to become head in the church rather than Jesus? Possessions. Possessions. And I'm not just talking about kind of in our own life, we chase after the almighty dollar and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also and be a generous giver and all that stuff. No, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about in the church itself, as we relate to one another, as we are together with one another, sometimes, sometimes you and I can hear people say things like, well, you know, that person is a very generous giver, so we should probably listen. Or, you know what, you know, they, they're upset about something or, you know, or, or they really liked, you know, a particular thing that we did, a program or a message Lucas preached, or they liked the volume of the music or whatever, and, and whatever they like or whatever they dislike, we should respond to them in such a way as to kind of, you know, learn and, and, and respond or whatever, because if they leave, we're going to be in a pretty tough spot financially. You hear people say stuff like that. Or, or I've heard people come into my office sometimes and they'll say that they're upset about a particular decision, a particular thing, and then they'll drop this one on me. I'm going to take my offering elsewhere. <laughs> and I say, wow, let me grab the address of a couple of great churches in our area. Here. Sorry. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have said that, but I do. I do. All right. You know why? Here's why. And it's not because, it's not because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm unkind or uncaring because I, I feel like I, I am. Here, here's why. Because I'm absolutely convicted that in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, the gates of hell and death will not stand against his church. He does not need our money. And, and possessions or people with possessions are not the head of this church or any other church. Who's the head? Jesus. He's the leader. He's the authority. This happened in a church that James wrote to, and it was a circular letter, means it was supposed to go out to all the churches, and James sets up this hypothetical situation. Listen to what James says, it's up here on the screen. He says, let's say a man that's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly. What is he? He's rich. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place... While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He goes on. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, if you really want to do what God says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, watch and call it what it is, you are committing, say it with me, sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, Givers, generous givers. <laughs> like, it's great to give, is it not? This is the one thing that's recorded outside of the Gospels that Jesus himself said. Ready? Ready? Check it. It's more blessed to give than receive. That's great. But that's not what dictates the direction of our church or any church for that matter. What dictates the direction? Jesus. You want to know why? This is amazing. Watch, watch what Paul says. He says in Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 19 and 20. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the God man. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So watch what Paul is saying. This is amazing to me. He says that we were once at odds with God, 
in fact, all things were once at, odd, at odds with God. But Jesus reconciled all those things, so we are no longer at odds with God. We can be, I mean, this is even, even hard to even speak out loud because of who God is. We can be a friend of God now. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus reconciled all things, how? By the blood of his cross. Now listen to what the scripture says about Jesus' blood. Acts 20. Be shepherds of the church of God. He's talk, uh, Luke is talking about Jesus, which he bought, B-O-U-G-H-T, purchased with his own blood. Up here on the screen, Revelation 5.9, look at what the author of Revelation, John, says about Jesus. He's talking about the angels and saints sang a new song saying, you, that's Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you say it with me, purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So watch this now. This is amazing. Jesus has reconciled all things, including you and me, by the blood of his cross. How did he do it? He paid the price for you and me. He bought us purchased us not only that in him for him and through him all things were created he imagined them like a painter imagines a painting like a sculpture imagines a sculpture he created it for himself and he stood back so that others could admire it both creation and you and me and say man he's good so watch this now jesus is the head of the church because he possesses all things including you including you. Hence the reason that we have an opportunity to give. Hence the reason when people come in here and, and, and new people, even Becky said this earlier, like we, we, don't, we expect nothing. You give as you feel led. You give as you set aside in your heart to give beforehand. But possessions do not lead our church. Better yet, people with possessions do not lead our church. Each one of us, just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, we are simply servants, servants of the king, the head who leads our church. That goes for pastors, that goes for elders, that goes for people who have been here a long time, that goes for folks with a lot of possessions, that goes for folks who volunteer here a lot and give 40, 50 hours a week of service. Each one of us, we are humble servants of the king. Possessions, riches, cannot lead our church. There are none left to have. Jesus has them all. He's got all the possessions. He's got all the power. He's the head. So easy peasy, lemon squeezy. All right, number five, preferences. We allow preferences to be the head of the church. Preferences to be the head of the church. We have preferences, don't we? Lots of preferences. What kind of music we like. That's always the big one, isn't it? It's like if you ask people, if you ask people in the church, like, do you have a preference as to how long our discipleship class is, of four weeks or five weeks? Do you have a preference? People are like, you know, I, I mean, whatever. Do you have a preference as to how loud we run it in here? Yes, I do. Everybody's got one of those. 
about how many songs we do, how many hymns we do, how many modern ones we do, how many vocalists, how many instrumentalists, everybody's, we've got a preference. But we've got preferences in terms of ministry programs. We've got preferences in terms of service times. We've got all kinds of preferences. Here's the, here's the thing, two things that are, that, are, that are critical to understand here. Number one, if you always get what you prefer, it's destructive for you long term. If you always get what you prefer, it's going to be bad for you in the long run. I'll give you an example, and then we're going we're to talk about why Jesus is the head of the church and what it has to do with preferences, okay? I'll give you an example. Somebody on Facebook this week, somebody in our congregation, actually, I can't remember who it was, posted like the nine least healthy meals at chain restaurants. Who did that? Did anybody see that on Facebook this week? Nine least healthy meals at chain restaurants. Nobody saw that. Good. This will be new. Okay. So I'm reading this thing on Facebook, the nine least healthy meals at chain restaurants, and I get to a a restaurant that that God invented, by the way. On the eighth day after resting, he invented the Red Lobster. And, and, and to top it off, he invented those little cheese biscuits. You know what I'm talking about at Red Lobster? Oh my gosh, if that's not manna from heaven, boy howdy, that is, that's good, right? So I'm reading like these nine least healthy meals at chain restaurants, and, and one of the meals that they're talking about is this red lobster combo meal, and it's like different kinds of shrimp, and I'm going, how is shrimp? Shrimp, unhealthy. Like that's not, that's unhealthy. It was like Walt's favorite shrimp, and like somebody's like, apparently if you take shrimp and you cover them with coconut and you deep fry them, they become unhealthy. I didn't know that. If you slather them with butter and like lard, they become unhealthy. I didn't know that. I was shocked. I was surprised to learn that one of my favorite combo meals at the Red Lobster, if you eat only, check this out, one cheese biscuit. Who does that? <laughs> Who does that? Like if that's you, we, like we got some counselors here on staff that we need to get you in contact with because if you stop at one you have you have a problem if you eat one cheese biscuit and you eat my favorite combo meal now the combo meal that I would prefer at the Red Lobster you will eat 3,600 calories and you will eat 6,530 milligrams of sodium it's essentially seven days of salt intake in one meal If you get what you prefer all the time, it's going to be destructive for you in the long term, isn't it? Let me tell you one other thing about preferences. Here's the other thing about preferences that's that's interesting and and it's instructive when we talk about why preferences are not the head of the church. Here's the second thing, is that preferences are always comparisons. Always. I prefer that shrimp over that shrimp, right? Right? I prefer that music over that music. I prefer to wake up at this time rather than that time. The interesting part about what Paul says here is he says Jesus is the ultimate preference and he's always good for you no matter what. That's number one. Number two, he says that Jesus does not play the comparison game. You want to know why? Because he does not compare to anything. You can't compare him to anything. Like, how do you compare Jesus to something that he created? You don't. 
As Paul would say in Romans chapter nine, the, 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 the clay never says to the potter, well, you know what, let's talk about what you did here. Like, you cannot compare him to anything. I'm gonna read you this entire text. By the way, this, what I'm about to read is the text that we've been spending our last couple weeks on because this is the critical piece for us. It was a hymn in the early church, by the way. This is one of the songs that they sang. Some people preferred it over other things, but whatever, okay? But I'm gonna read it to you again and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put the emphasis on the word that Paul puts the emphasis on. We don't have an emphatic a pronoun in the English language, but Paul uses a pronoun every time he says the word he or his that should have emphasis, that should have accent, that should have a little bit of oomph behind it. So listen to what Paul says about the incomparable Jesus who is the head of the church. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him, this is in the original language now, I'm not making this up, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and by him. And he is before, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You want to know why Jesus is the head of the church and not preferences? Because Jesus is incomparable. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the leader of the church because he is incomparable. He is the ultimate preference. He is the ultimate joy. He is exalted above all things. So we get sidelined and shipwrecked by talking about things that we prefer one thing over another and Jesus is standing by going, look, I don't, you can't even compare me to that stuff. Paul says, that is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. I'm gonna read it one more time and then we're gonna conclude. For in him, sorry, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, purchase all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We can't let power or people or positions or possessions, or preferences, be the head of the church. It's got to be Jesus as a body, as a soma in the original language, as a group, as a gathering of believers. Men and women of God, the invitation and the exhortation today is that we would put our hands in the middle and say, Jesus is king. He's king over my preferences. He's king over my possessions. He's king over any influence or authority I might have either outside of the church or within the church. He's king over me and any other person here. He's king and Lord and head over all that stuff. He is preeminent. He is first. He is incomparable. He is exalted. And all of those other things just fall by the wayside. As we've said from the beginning here, all those other planets just fall into place when Jesus is the burning sun at the center of our church. Let's join our hearts together and pray.
Worship team, I'm gonna invite you guys back up as we kind of get ready to close with a song here and sing um, our praise to Jesus, the King. So God, we come before you and ask that you would be the burning sun, Jesus, at the center of our universe. And when it comes to doctrinal positions, when it comes to each of us as individuals, every person in our church, when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to all of those things that we talked about this morning that might kind of bump you off the throne of our lives and more specifically today, uh, the throne of our church, that we would see all of those things fall into place as we firmly locate you at the center. Jesus, that we would focus on you, that we would um, be captivated by you once again. God, that we would release maybe some of those things today, those preferences, those positions, and open our hands such that we might receive from you what you are giving, and that's care, grace, leadership, headship, as we as a church seek to be your representative in the world. In Christ's name, amen.